right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the One Health Podcast. I'm your host, Tori Schmelzer. I'm a fitness enthusiast slash fitness entrepreneur. My goal is to share the knowledge I gather through meeting industry experts with as many people as I can. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, each week we're going to bring on different experts in areas of health. So that could be mental health, physical health, professional health, spiritual health, and everything like that. We don't claim to be experts in any of these subjects. We just know the people who are and we interview them for the greater good. Thanks again for your love and support on social media and on iTunes. Uh, make sure you guys go on that podcast app. Do us a favor. Leave us a review on iTunes. That really does help us. And shout out to our sponsors, EcoGym and Motivating You. Make sure you go to shop.teammotivate, the letter N and the letter U.com, and sign up for your free macro plan today. All listeners are going to receive this special offer. So act now. And EcoGym. EcoGymWorldwide.com. Go check it out. If there's a club near you, you guys have to go. They're doing a special offer to all podcast listeners, $5 to join through the end of this month. So make sure you guys do that. Uh, just mention that you're a One Health subscriber and you'll get that offer. Today on the show, I have the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, Josh McFerrin. Josh, thanks for being on, brother. Thanks, Tori. Uh, Josh is the owner and founder of Chicago Manual therapy. Uh, Josh is a licensed physical therapist here in the Chicago area with over 15 years of experience in the industry. He is a part of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy, a certified myofascial trigger point therapist, and he recently started offering uh, blood flow restriction uh, rehabilitation services. So uh, yeah, man, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Uh, really appreciate it. I was excited. Um, so I guess to start... Give us a little bit of background. Uh, how did you get into the industry? What made you kind of gravitate towards physical therapy? Yeah, um, I've been practicing just, uh, I'm in my 19th year of practice. Um, I decided I wanted to do physical therapy kind of back in high school, early college, but I really liked anatomy. I really liked uh, the idea of chiropractic manipulation. Um, there were a lot of things that just interested me about any kind of biological sciences. But, you know, I think that certain things just draw you in one direction versus the other. But honestly, when I became a physical therapist, it was not a lock and key fit. I thought I was going to be bored really fast. Um, you have a couple cases that uh, inspire you. You have a couple mentors who make you want to be better. And that kind of brings me where I'm at today. Um, I, I think that I had a, a great start in a very challenging job, and I stayed there a little bit too long, which is kind of one of the things that compelled me to go back and get some postdoctorate training uh, at UIC. And that's, that's what got me into uh, my fellowship status, which, again, it's, uh, it's a credential. It's, that's all it is. It's really nothing more, but it does speak volumes as far as like having the experience to be able to um, differentiate different things when it comes to the field of physical therapy. Physical therapy is a lot of things. I mean, when you hear, you know, I'm a physical therapist, I mean, what do you, what do you think I do? That's what I was going to ask you. That was going to be my very first question for those that I, so I have never done physical therapy before. I think I kind of know what it is, yeah. but so like, I think the general public's opinion of it is okay. I get hurt. I have an injury. Correct. I go see a physical therapist and they give me certain movements to do, or they give me some resistance on my body to help strengthen the area around that. Absolutely. Am I on the right track there? Absolutely. I mean, okay. traditional physical therapy is based around the idea the body has to move and the body has to move to recover. And eventually, you know, whether strength is an issue, whether um, decreased range of motion is an issue, but there has to be pain-free motion in order for somebody to have 
you know, functional well-being. So uh, traditional physical therapy is something that I still do. Um, I have moved a little bit away from the model of somebody comes in, they see the physical therapist for a half hour, and then they do exercises on their own. Um, exercise is so important, and I think that that's one of the things that physical therapists are trained really well in is how to use exercise as, uh, as medicine. And I think that that's one thing that is always going to be the most important thing is that somebody's exercising. Uh, but I call it Chicago manual therapy, not because I just sit there and rub people's calves and thighs and, <laughs> and shoulders for, for an hour straight, but because manual therapy is a, is a designation of a credential that requires that everything is personalized and everything is specialized according to the area of impairment. So if I was going to do manual therapy on a sore shoulder that you have, Tori, um, I would want to make sure that I, I kind of assess what's missing. Is it strength, motion, fascial mobility? And then I would see if we can kind of facilitate that. And then I would want to make sure that you're doing something that's going to complement and potentially progress what I just did. And so, so I see, I see a lot of people that get, they're really, really scared after an injury to go back to exercise. Yes. At what point, what are some things you tell them when they're ready to go? What, how are you kind of coaching them into, okay, this is what you should do. You should be going to the gym, doing this and that. What are you, what are you kind of saying to them? You know, it's, it goes back to, you know, people tend to catastrophize their injuries where they get a little bit of pain after an injury and they're assuming they're re-injuring themselves. And so fear is, is, is so important that you are able to kind of get rid of some of the fear, fear of motion, uh, fear of re-injury. And I think that once you can kind of convince somebody that they may have false signals that may not necessarily mean that they're injured, but they may be just needing to reacclimate to those types of movements that their body's unfamiliar with at this time. So it kind of goes into a lot of pain science. It goes into some things that get pretty complicated, but I try and keep it really simple and just tell people that motion is lotion and that if you can kind of re realize that the body has healed, but it's on a continuum. And that continuum exists between injury and between being completely healed. And we're never usually on one end or the other. So what we want to do is make sure that you're further towards the healing end than you are towards the injury end. And I think that if you respect, you know, kind of how the body heals, there's a sequence that has to take place. There's the first phase of injury, the second phase of injury. And then once you get into the, the remodeling and the restructuring, if you don't exercise, then you're more likely to re-injure. And so where I come in is typically in that phase where it can be as early as two or three days after an injury. It can be as early as, um, you know, sometimes even 24 hours is trying to make sure that we create the best possible tissue environment for healing to continue to take place. Gotcha. So, gotcha. One injury that I'm really curious on, and we see it a ton here with a lot of our clients is people coming back from, um, it could be ACL, MCL injuries, stuff like that, um, torn meniscus, things like that. What are some things you do to kind of help them with that, I feel like that's a really yeah, common very, injury very nowadays. Common. And, and the hard part about those injuries is the knee is a load-bearing joint that requires a lot of muscular contraction to be able to strengthen it again and heavy loads to be able to strengthen it again. Um, one of the biggest problems is whenever you have knee pain, there's a lot of inhibition in the muscles around the knee joint, which basically means that the muscle shuts down. And as the muscle shuts down, it doesn't perform as efficiently or as effectively, and it continues to strain that muscle. Um, so one of the things I specialize in is trigger point um, dry needling. So something that is, is, you know, extremely important is that you're able to be able to get that muscle to work again. And working it under the conditions where it's not necessarily receiving too heavy of a too load too fast. 
And so when somebody comes in post meniscectomy where they have some of the, the cartilage removed from their knee or they just have an injury that they have to kind of stay off of for a period of time, there's a lot of inhibition and there's a lot of you know, r reduction in how the actual quad, the hamstring, the calf, and even the hip work together. So what we try and do is we try and look at that entire kinetic chain. The kinetic chain is from the foot all the way up to the spine, how those forces kind of interact together. And we see where maybe the misses in that, that chain are, you know, what are the things that are limiting that knee from being able to accept the load? And is it just tightness in the quad? Is it maybe some limitations in hip range of motion and actual hip stability? Um, and I think that that's where people go wrong is they just try and get movement back and then they just try and strengthen really fast. And so a lot of times, you know, a couple extra weeks of doing some soft tissue mobilization, some dry needling, and then some hip conditioning go a long way. So when you say dry needling, yes. uh, a lot of people probably get a little scared. What Absolutely. does this guy mean? Is he going to jam needles <laughs> into my knee or like my back? Yeah. or what? What is dry needling? What is that? So I was certified in a form of uh, myofascial trigger point dry needling um, through a company called Myopain. And it changed my practice. And I was reluctant to want to do it because I don't like needles traditionally. But uh, it's using acupuncture filaments to do non-acupuncture techniques where you're actually inserting the filament into the muscle to try and release what is called a trigger point. Uh, it's a temporary response that allows the muscle to regain some of the ability to contract and relax. And it works both by a central nervous system mechanism that I'm not going to bore you with, as well as a, a, a local <laughs> and, and regional response where the muscle actually contracts better right away. Um, one of the things that people have a hard time understanding is that they're not I'm not perforating a bunch of tissue where I'm creating a lot of hemorrhage and I'm not creating a lot of injury. It's actually less injury and less hemorrhaging than most deep tissue massage. Okay. But the problem is there's a stigma to needles. So I think that that is something that people have to overcome. I, I tell most people that mo the mo majority of my clients love to hate it and hate to love it. Uh, but it is probably the best tool that I've developed uh, in, in, I would say, the last 10 years. Um, do you know what manipulation is? Uh, chiropractic no, no, manipulation. That was a, that manipulation. was another thing I was okay. going to ask you about. I saw on your website you did some uh, spinal manipulation or anything like so, that. So yeah, I, I've been I've always been a big fan of uh, spinal manipulation and extremity manipulation. And when I opened Chicago Manual Therapy, that was probably one of my biggest go-to tools. But I ran into so many people that had um, kind of bad. Uh, I would, I would say bad experiences or um, have had friends who've had bad experiences. And so when they talk about having their spine cracked or popped or manipulated, as we say, then they're not necessarily a big fan. So I had to open up my toolbox and find what was going to be the best kind of, you know, method for treating some of these clients who had an aversion to manipulation. Manipulation still has a place in my practice, but I, I think that it's a lesser place now that I've found some of these other tools with fascial manipulation and, and, uh, and uh, trigger point uh, therapy. So, so when we're talking, so did you, are you using techniques that chiropractors used? Is it the same thing? It's very similar. Um, so I've taught um, manipulation, and I, I try not to say whether it's physical therapy manipulation, chiropractic manipulation, but because uh, quite honestly, chiropractors are amazing manipulators, and I, I've seen some really really talented chiropractors, and I've learned from talented chiropractors. But I've also taught chiropractors some different techniques because um, maybe the technique varies a tad bit, but I think that it 
the the reality is both of them are equally safe. It just has to be performed on the right candidate at the right time of healing. And I think that one of the, the issues sometimes people have is that their neck may be stiff, their back may be stiff, and it may feel like it needs manipulated, but there may be uh, an aggressive manipulation that's form performed through muscle spasm, and that can create more local tissue irritation. And so I kind of took that out of my practice, and I started using needling more. And when I did the dry needling, I found that the stiffness wasn't there near as much. And I found that once we reintegrated movements and different types of, you know, uh, muscle control and muscle coordination activities, that stiffness didn't persist near as much as it did uh, before I started doing those some of those techniques. Do you feel like a lot of chiropractors aren't educated on some of this muscle stuff like you are? Absolutely not. Um, okay. I think that there's there's a philosophical difference that exists. Um, and so I think it's it's one of those things where I would never say that there's they're not educated, but there's a different kind of training and maybe a different philosophy. But I have worked with some chiros um, hand in hand and I actually get referrals from chiropractors, and occasionally I think that there may be a good fit. Um, but I think that a lot of chiropractors, modern chiropractors and young chiropractors have changed their model to kind of meet some of the current pain science theories and some of the, the new trends uh, when we talk about you know what healing is and what healing isn't. Um, so I, I, I try not to speak ill of any, any one profession as a generalization. Um, I, I just like to say that sometimes it's like different religions. You have to agree to disagree on certain things. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I was just, I, I'm, I'm interested in that too because my, my father was a huge chiropractic fan. He went yeah. there all the time. He had a lot of back problems. Um, you know, and I used to speak with him sometimes about, you know, maybe this might be an issue with your muscles sometimes. And I, I wondered if they were giving him all of that information. So what's interesting you know. is, you know, I see a lot of clients that actually have relationships that they've built with their chiropractor over a long period of time. And so because they have that relationship, I never try and dissuade them from maintaining that relationship and, and doing what they need to do. But I do try and see if I can fill in some of the blanks, if there are some, because I'm going to be the first person to admit there are some amazing personal trainers out there that are going to be able to rehab somebody better than me after I get them through the woods. My forte is not necessarily coming up with the most uh, functional-based exercise program that's going to maintain long-term health. Um, my specialty and expertise is going to be in getting somebody back to the level where I can send them to the right person. So I always say that I think we all have kind of a, a role to play. And as long as we can sit there and respect you know, this practitioner and this physician and this you know, personal trainer, I think that that's where you know, the balance should be. But sometimes I think uh, egos tend to take over and feelings tend to get hurt. But uh, <laughs> I, I would say that I've been very fortunate in, in working with a really, really good base of clientele that, that like that model. And they like the fact that they use me for specific things. That's so. good. With blood flow restriction, yeah. you just started doing this. I saw the other day you brought your, well, yesterday you brought your equipment into the gym here and you were using it. What is blood flow restriction? What, why should people be looking into this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so just when we go back to the meniscal injury, uh, the knee requires the most uh, heavy loads in order to be able to build strength back to functional levels. And so when you think back to you know, when you're, you're strengthening your knee, how sore your knee can get, or if somebody has a little bit of arthritis in there, or if somebody has a surgical procedure where they have to abide by certain precautions and not have more than like 40% uh, 
of their, their body weight going through their knee. Blood flow restriction is designed to create metabolic strain on the muscles and on the tissues of that area, but not mechanical strain. Mechanical strain is what breaks tissue down and creates a lot of unnecessary soreness, and it makes things heal very slowly. So when we're thinking about muscle anabolism, the ability to actually build muscle, it's, it's, it's hard to do, and it takes a very long period of time. It can take anywhere from six to eight weeks, but more likely about three months. And so what has happened is they've looked at several studies, and there's been a lot of research in the past even you know 20 years but in the last five to seven years there's been more research done specifically on occlusion training where they occlude the blood flow into the thigh or into the arm Um, it's it's going to be a cuff that's going to be a certain width and you're trying to maximally occlude the arterial flow and the venous flow up to about 80 percent in order to create metabolic strain so that you're operating at about 20 to 30 percent of your maximum ability to use that extremity and so with those lower loads, you're not creating as much tissue damage. Mm. Now, it is incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you look like you're in a lot of is, pain. It is incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, so, so it's filling this cuff with air? It's, to, it's a pneumatic. Squeeze? Yeah, so okay. it's a class three medical device. Okay. Uh, and that's re- the reason I had to get certified in it is to understand some of the parameters and understand some of the things around it. Um, it is something that you can't just go out and buy. You have to be a physical therapist, a chiropractor, or a physician. Um, and some athletic trainers have the, the, the ability to do this as well. Um, but it is something that I think has a lot of potential in several different avenues. Um, I have some clients who like to work out aggressively on a regular basis and are constantly battling overuse injuries. And so I've given them the option of, of maybe looking at some of this recovery science because that's what it is. It's based on what's called Owens Recovery Science. Um, and it's, it's a, I think it's an amazing possibility. Um, I think it's going to take a very distinctive pers- uh, personality to be able to tolerate the discomfort associated with it. Um, and there's, there's probably some things that we have to be aware of as far as risk factors. You know, we don't want to do it with pregnant women. We don't want to do it with people who have a, a high possibility of, of past uh, deep vein thrombosis, DVTs. Uh, blood clots are always, you know, a potential uh, side effect. But I think that it's, it's got some, some room to grow and some gro- room to kind of move into different territories. What I'm trying to do right now is just, you know, expose myself to a couple different types of workouts so that I can kind of better titrate how much is too much, um, what kind of, you know, parameters I want to use as far as, um, you know, I think two days a week for four weeks is what I want to see some kind of serious effect. Because what they're touting right now in the research is two to four weeks for muscle growth, which is pretty unheard of. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad you said um, having the certification, I, I've seen videos online of these guys who oh, are boy. tying elastic bands around their quads uh, up towards their hip there. And <laughs> to me, that's the first impression I got of it. Yeah. And I think it gives it a bad rep. And I think you should go to somebody who is certified to, before you start messing around with stuff like this, honestly. Yeah, there's there's some serious you know side effects from you know doing too much compression because one of the things that happens is the more narrow the cuff or more narrow the band that you're using, more narrow the strap, uh, the greater compression but the less occlusion you're getting. And occlusion is going to be what creates uh, the production of what's called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor, which helps produce more growth hormone, mm-hmm. which is going to help synthesize protein into muscle. Uh, it kind of goes back into, again, all the science around it. But when you do just an elastic band, 
you can create some fascial mobility, you can create some different changes in blood flow, which is probably going to be slightly therapeutic. But if you're talking about occlusion training, you're not actually doing occlusion, you're doing compression, and you can create some nerve damage. And so that's the one thing that people should realize with that is you have to be careful with some of the voodoo band stuff. If you're not careful, it can be a little bit more problematic than what it's worth. So who's, what type of people should be using this uh, blood flow restriction training? Athletes, you, um, okay. you know, because if, if you're going to go out and perform on Saturday or Friday and you're trying to stay conditioned during the, the, the season, this is going to be something that helps you recover that much faster. And so your workout is going to cause that much less mechanical stress, but you're still going to get all those same, same kind of um, high intensity um, training principles that you're looking for, which is, again, the growth hormone and the increased level of, of cell volumization. That's supposed to be in and of itself very therapeutic. Okay. There, there's something that they talk about that's called pre, uh, uh, preconditioning or ischemic preconditioning, which is putting the cuff on at 100% and just letting it sit there for five minutes and then taking it off for five minutes, five minutes. And there's some pretty positive uh, you know, studies that are being done that says that it actually reduces delayed onset muscle soreness and less pain after eccentric training. And so eccentric training being, again, this type of training, uh, training that's going to help increase strength and re reduce the, the likelihood that you're going to develop a tendonitis in some of those areas. Interesting. So Interesting. I saw on your website that you do things to relieve servogenic headaches. Yes. Did I say that right? Servogenic? Yeah. What is a servogenic headache? A uh, cervicogenic headache is basically a headache that's induced by something that has to do with the neck. And it's usually going to be in the upper two or three joints um, having to do with the the bone, the tone, and the fascia. So both the joint, the muscle, and the connective tissue that surrounds it. Um, posture is going to be huge. Uh, as soon as somebody sits with their head slightly tilted forward, it's going to be a huge contributing factor to muscle tension headaches. Cervicogenic headaches can also be related to um, stiffness in the t upper two joints. So if you what I typically do for cervicogenic headaches is I do dry needling to uh, a couple different muscles that are associated with that region and then try and do some uh, mobilization of the joints to make sure that they have adequate movement. And then a lot of muscle control. Um, some of the muscles of the neck are, are something that we don't strengthen that often. And the longer we sit in certain postural positions, the longer they're kind of held in uh, elongated, uh, elongated stretch positions where it weakens them over time. And so just getting that coordination, just getting that kind of, you know, consideration that it's maybe not just coming from the neck and it's maybe not just coming from the shoulder it's kind of coming from all those components so a lot of times with headaches i will treat the shoulder i will treat the back i will treat um the neck i will treat the the, the front of the chest i mean there it just what i look at is again what are the major uh impairments do you have headaches I, I asked that question because mainly because when I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, my girlfriend has headaches all the time, and we're kind of going through this phase right now. We're trying to figure out what it is. Okay. First, we thought it might be dehydration, okay. stuff like that. She wasn't drinking enough water, electrolytes, this and that, but I feel like maybe it'd be something else. Maybe this might be so what's going on. It, it's interesting. I mean, um, the... There's a classification of headaches that is probably a thousand deep of different things that can contribute to headaches between, you know, chemical components of migraines uh, to, um, you know, different types of, uh, of neuro uh, neurologic conditions. So I always say if there's a chance that there's some restrictions in those upper two or three joints and there's a postural component, 
it may not necessarily solve the problem, but it may be a big component that kind of pushes it one way or the other and maybe makes medication that much more effective. Yeah, it's just funny. We talk, She's a big runner. Okay. So we, you know, we look at her posture when she runs, and I'm running with her, and I've noticed when she starts to get tired, she starts to do this. Mm-hmm. When she yeah. starts to come forward. Punching forward, yeah. She's, you know, complaining about her back hurting and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and it, we talked about the kinetic chain and how everything is connected back there. Absolutely. And you need to work on the strengthening of the other muscles. But uh, that's interesting. I might have to... Well, it's amazing sometimes when you think about, you know, all the different muscles that we don't use on a regular basis that are actually pretty important for posture. It's no wonder we don't tolerate, you know, sitting for long periods of time. I mean, it's, I, I hate doing uh, computer-based work for longer than like 50 minutes or so because I feel like, you know, my upper back starts to tighten up. But and I, I do the normal things, but I just, I'm blessed with a job where I'm on my feet all the time, so I don't necessarily have to sit for that long, so. What are some common misconceptions about physical therapy? You get people that are hesitant to, to go see a physical therapist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like the doctor says yeah. you got to go, and they're like, oh, really? What do I, why? So, yeah, I think that, you know, the biggest obstacle I had at, at Chicago Manual Therapy was to overcome a stigma that was associated with um, certain larger practices. Um, it's not a bad thing to have a practice where they treat 80% of the population very effectively but there's about 20% of the population that kind of falls through the cracks because they may require a little bit more hands-on, they may require a little bit more specific type of uh, treatments and methodologies. And so I think that when somebody has been to one of those larger places, they get somewhat of a bad taste in their mouth because they're like, I don't need to do these exercises and I don't wanna be billed $250 for doing exercises (laughs) that I can do at home. And, And you know, I think that I don't fault any of those those places because I think that they absolutely have a huge role to play. And I think there's some very, very talented therapists who work in those environments. I'm just very fortunate that I have an hour to work with each individual client. And because I have that hour, I, I can really, really allow myself to, to individualize everything, personalize everything. And every single session, you know, we get more and more done. And I see people once a week a lot of times. So... The, the, the biggest misconception about physical therapy is that it's not, um, we're not trained that well. And, you know, that we're basically glorified uh, exercise monkeys who, you know, <laughs> do massage on the shoulders or ultrasound, you know, or electrical stem. And I think that the model has shifted and, and our training is actually really, really good. I mean, some of the kids coming out of school nowadays blow me away with their knowledge base. Now, experience is, is still going to be, you know, the mm-hmm. thing that kind of speaks, you know, the, the, the most. But I, I would say that um, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that how, how, uh, how much training that we, we go through. So, Gotcha. Yeah. Um, the technology that's, you know, at these people's fingertips now mm. is unbelievable yeah. coming out of school. And the research has been – you've been doing it for almost 20 years? Yeah, I'm an old said? man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you've seen a lot of technologies kind of come and go throughout the years in your industry. You know, that's, it's the funny thing. Um, you know, I think when I was probably in my mid twenties, uh, late twenties, um, manipulation, uh, spinal manipulation became something where they found these clinical prediction rules, which is basically something that is the, the term that they were using was evidence-based medicine and evidence-based medicine is something that exists in any type of, uh, Mm -hmm. medical practice. And it basically has, um, it dictates that there's certain 
uh, criteria, if certain criteria are present, then it usually lends itself to this type of pattern, right? Yeah. Well, they developed a clinical prediction rule based on evidence-based medicine that if there were certain criteria present, then you should perform spinal manipulation. And they almost made it tantamount to malpractice or like negligence if you didn't do this. And there was a lot of people who started manipulating unnecessarily. And so some of these older clinicians who had been doing soft tissue work and they'd been doing tissue stretching and they knew what they were talking about. And, you know, maybe they had some antiquated techniques that didn't necessarily um, still apply, but they were very effective clinicians and they got kind of blasted because they weren't changing with the times. And what's amazing is they kind of had it right because the clinical prediction rule kind of it, 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 it they tested it more and more and it didn't fit. It didn't necessarily apply as much as they thought it did. It gave us structure and it gave us framework to work from, but it never should have been a dogma. It never should have been something where it was like, wow, oh, you have to do this or otherwise you're, you're, you're being irresponsible. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was something that, you know, in a framework of physical therapy where, you know, people use therapeutic ultrasound, people use uh, infrared, people use heat and cold modalities, people use electrical stem, and now people use manipulation and dry needling and fascial manipulation. I just think that it's, it's really interesting because sometimes the oldest things, uh, you know, the 10,000-year-old, you know, techniques of, you know, when you, when you see gladiators getting rubbed down with these brass and wooden tools after mm -hmm. an event, and you see those tools at, at like, you know, some of the museums, and then you hear about gua sha, which is, you know, using some kind of jade stone or something like that that the Chinese people used. And those are the trending techniques right now. And it's like, so I think that that's the th funny thing is technology continues to evolve, but the techniques continue to seem like, you know, the old way of doing it. The old way of doing it is not a bad way of doing it. Right. Not a bad way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and even the bone crunching, you know, has been around since, you know, way, I mean, back to, you know, um, you know, I would say Greek physicians, but I mean, even into the 1880s, I mean, there were uh, UK uh, physicians and, uh, and uh, physiotherapists that were doing, you know, or uh, actually osteopathic uh, specialists who were doing, you know, a lot of manipulation. And so again, I think that, you know, everything new is still borrowed. I mean, somewhat. Yeah, yeah I like that. You mentioned stretching just yeah. there how yeah. important of a role does that play in your practice oh man you're, you do? you're asking me a, a very very loaded question there <laughs> so most people who know me know that i don't i don't recommend stretching very often um you know stretching is something that they've studied uh, through hamstring and calf and different things and i i think that the the one thing that stuck with me was there was no parameter that was ever established for like an ideal hamstring stretch true and so one of the things they found is that actually by stretching the hamstring, you actually increase the neurologic tone. And so stretching for me is, is very different than trying to increase um, like actual mobility. So now if I, somebody has tight hamstrings, is it the sciatic nerve that's really giving you more of a, 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 a sense that this hamstring is tight? Or is it more the connective tissue that goes from the heel all the way up into the back that is restricted that makes it feel like that hamstring is tight. Because I think that that's the one thing. Hamstrings have an icky sensation, if you will, but not necessarily tight. So it's like when you pull somebody's hamstring into a position, it doesn't feel good. But I don't think that you know stretching a muscle is always the best thing, but I do think that you have to maintain mobility. And so if I have somebody who's a little bit more 
you know, stiff dominant, then yeah, I want them moving. I want them moving through those fascial compartments. I want them trying to get that muscle to contract and relax. Mm. But I think that sometimes if it's a tight muscle, one of the most important things you can do is to get it to contract better because then it relaxes more effectively. So and that's really, really interesting. I thought you like were going to say the exact opposite. <laughs> Honestly, when I asked you that, I thought you were going to go, oh, it's so important. Wow. Yeah, so, but again, I think that if you're talking about stretching, like bending over and touching your toes or, you know, holding stretches for 30 seconds is what we classically learned when I was in PT school. Um, I, I developed a much different feel for that. Um, when I went through my manual therapy certification, they, uh, it was through the Ola Grimsby uh, Institute called OGI. And OGI was based around uh, what was called uh, medical exercise training. So MET is, is the, the way they designated it. But it was all based around the idea that you wanted to selectively stress tissue based on what you were trying to accomplish. So if you're trying to build strength, there's a curve of how many repetitions you want to try and accomplish, how you want to use them. If you're trying to accomplish coordination and like microcirculation and vascularization, then there's a certain repetition. And so what you try and what I try and figure out is what's missing from this component. Is it tight or does it feel tight because there's restrictions that are deep? Other thing that's tough about stretching a muscle is that you don't know that you're getting a uniform uh, elongation of that tissue. Most times it's going to be non-uniform because you're going to have a restriction. You're going to have a little knot that's going to exist. Like say, let's take the calf, right? Mm -hmm. So the medial gastroc typically has a lot of tightness in through there. But if you poke on the outside of your calf, on the right, right near where the, the fibular head is, it's usually pretty tender in through there. And that, that's a big fascial compartment. And so you've got this knot in the medial gastroc, you've got this tightness in the, the lateral gastroc um, or the lateral calf, and you try and stretch that, chances are you're gonna stretch at the Achilles, you're gonna stretch at the back of the knee, and you might stretch a little bit through the soleus, the, the deep muscle of the calf and into the, you know, the, the, the connective tissue there, but chances are you're not stretching those knots. You're not mm -hmm. stretching those areas that are actually restricted. And so sometimes doing soft tissue work and then doing some elongated stretching I think is great, but I think the best way to stretch a muscle is to contract the opposite muscle, doing what's called reciprocal inhibition, which again, yoga, there you go. Yeah. Yoga is all based on, you know, contracting one muscle and not doing passive stretching or something like that. So I feel like with the stretching too, unless you really have someone there to help you with it, again, the uniformity, you might be turned a certain way, even if it's like a couple millimeters a wrong way. And I think it, and I think it, yeah. I mean, if it's if it's something that feels good, you're probably not doing yourself any any harm. But I think that occasionally it's like, well, do you really want to stretch this, or do you want to make it stronger? Tight muscles tend to be weak muscles, so I think that that's what I try and emphasize to a lot of my clients is, if you're stretching 45 minutes every night, and your hamstrings are still tight, chances are. That's not necessarily the best use of your yeah. time. So <laughs> there's something else going on there. But what about yeah. what about uh, foam rolling? Do you do you recommend foam rolling to um, so some we of your... we do to some people? Yeah, yeah and I've done it before. Same thing. Anecdotally, I think it's great. I mean, I think that there's so many people who do well with self uh, soft tissue mobilization. Um, it, it's it's better than trying to stretch. Let's put it that way. It's definitely more effective. Um, but I think that it, it still has you know pluses and minuses. I think that when, when, when some people do it and they, they, they end up with bruises all over the place, it's like, that eh, might be a little too much, you know, Seriously. maybe just a tad bit too much, but 
Uh, or if somebody tells you they foam roll, you know, three hours a week and, and they're still feel tight, then they might be missing a component somewhere. So yeah. that's an interesting perspective on that. But yeah. I'm a big fan of foam rolling. I'm a big fan of any self soft tissue using a lacrosse ball, using sticks, you know, I mean, anything that's going to stimulate some of the free nerve endings in some of those areas that are tight, anything that's going to stimulate uh, fascial lubrication. I mean, that's the type of thing that I look for. What a, do you use one of those um, trigger point release guns, those new guns that like pound at the muscle? <laughs> no, but it, that's it, like the new thing. You know what? I have about probably a dozen clients that, that own those and uh, I have no, nothing wrong with them. I think they're great, um, but I, I, I don't want to have a client come in and me put a, uh, a, a basically a jigsaw. Yeah, that's been modified into <laughs> uh, into into a th- trigger point gun. Um, but I do, you know, I use a therapeutic buffer though. I mean, I I think that feels good sometimes after uh, um, after needling, you know, because the tissue can be a little bit sensitive. You can have a little bit of a reaction where the muscle grabs a little bit and it feels a little sensitive. So I have this little thing. It looks like a car buffer, and you know, it just feels good. The only reason I bought it is because my wife was like, "Oh, it's fantastic! I, you got to get that." So <laughs> after 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 I needled her, she was the she was the final say on that one. I love so. it. I love it. Um, well, as we wrap up here, I always like to ask people for two pieces of advice. So, in your practice throughout the years, things that you've seen, um, health tip, I guess. What are two things that we can do to, I guess, improve our mobilization, things like that related to physical therapy, like two things we could be doing every day to be in that healthier spot. Yeah. You know, I think it goes back to, you know, what is your lifestyle like? It has to be something that fits into your lifestyle. So if you choose something, you have to make sure that it's not too far outside of the realms of of possibility for you. But I think that one of the things that I recommend is I went to a course a while back and the instructor had us get up every 20 minutes. He set an egg timer. And he had us get up every 20 minutes. And it was the first course that I'd taken. It was a three-day course. And I didn't have any stiffness in my hips, back, neck. And I felt like I retained the information that much better. So if we can break up the prolonged positions that we, we, we subject ourselves to, I think that that is something that goes a long way. And that's something that most people can fit into their day is if, if they're, they're typing a report or whether or not they've just driven three hours someplace you know, take the time when you get out of the car just to do a few back bends, a few shoulder, you know, squeezes, get your chin back in line with your chest. But I mean, breaking up that postural position is something that I think I would make a recommendation of every day. I like that. Um, the second one, man, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say, I would say the other thing is, is, is consistency is key. You know, you have to take the time to build a habit. And so if you're rehabbing something, um, just because the pain is gone or just because you have, you know, officially closed the door on an injury um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely on that side of healing, on that continuum. And I think that maintaining those habits and those, those, those behaviors that you did to get you healthy is something that you have to consider, you know, as an ongoing process. And I think that's where people fail most uh, in rehab is if they actually injure something and they do, you know, four to six weeks of therapy or something like that, and they feel great, but then they stop doing everything that got them to that point. So it's not a, a sentence, like you have to keep doing this the rest of your life, but I do think that it has to be kind of a part of a routine. And so giving themselves time to actually build that into the routine and maintain that routine, I think is something that I would recommend to anybody who's had physical therapy or had an injury, is that, you know, do what the therapist gave you so that it continues to help you heal. 
That's awesome. That's huge. Yeah, consistency, man. I mean, and really anything yeah. that you're doing when it comes to physical activity. Yeah. I love that. Those are really, really good, man. Thanks cool. for sharing. Yeah. Um, I want to commend you on the work you're doing Thanks. to get people healthy, to educating people. I think you mentioned it earlier, too. Education is a oh, huge part huge. of what you have to do. Instead of this, oh, come through the door, we'll do our, my, I'll do my manipulation and send you on your way. You know what I mean? I really like that approach that you take. So I commend you on that, man. That's awesome. Um, if people want to find out more about you, your company, what you're doing, how can they do that? Where do they go? So I have a, I have a website. It's a pretty minimal website, but it gives you a little bit of a, a bit of information about me and the, and the, the practice. It's chicagomanualtherapy.com. Uh, if you ever want to email me, uh, I, I answer emails at least once a day. It's cmt uh, at chicagomanualtherapy.com. And like I said, um, there is a portal on my website that you can uh, submit a request for an appointment. Um, a lot of my my appointments are people who, so Illinois now has what's called direct access. So they don't need to go see a physician or a doctor to come see me first. They can actually see me for eight to 10 sessions before they even, you know. And so what I tell people is, you know, if you've been thinking you have an injury and it's changed your workout, it's changed your lifestyle for longer than five to seven days and it's not changing, it's probably worth checking in with me because I think the longer something like that goes on, the harder it is to, to treat and the longer it takes to get better. But I would say, yeah, if they want to contact me on my website, feel more than welcome to. There you go. Blow, blow up his inbox, guys. Send him messages. Um, all right. As we wrap up here, thanks again to our sponsors, Eco Gym and Motivating You. Josh, thanks again for being on, brother. Oh, it was fun, Tori. All right. Until next week, guys. Thanks a lot. <laughs>